Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We will discuss ways to keep pedestrians safe in Hamilton. The NDP wants to set a wage floor for early childhood educators. The Bank of Canada continues to hike interest rates. If Russia did use chemical weapons in Ukraine, does that change how NATO responds? Etsy creators are on strike over fee hikes. And will Canada's run to the World Cup spell good news for Forge FC and the CPL? Find out more. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. We're also targeting Hamilton's top 10 collision intersections in an effort to reduce collisions, and we are working closely with the City of Hamilton on implementing road safety reform. That is Hamilton Police Chief Frank Bergen the other day going out on social media saying, hey, we got to do more to protect pedestrians in this community. Why? Well, we know why. Hamilton Police, city officials, a number of community residents are hoping to make our neighborhoods much more safer um, because of a recent rash of collisions involving pedestrians. Last year in Hamilton, there were nine pedestrian-related deaths in the city. This year so far, eight people have already died after being hit by a vehicle uh, since January the 8th, and that includes the hit-and-run that killed um, internationally renowned conductor Boris Brott. I mean, this situation is getting ridiculous. Tom Flood is a Hamilton parent principal at Ravello Creative and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Tom. How are you today? Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. Where's your level of concern at with this issue? Um, it's through the roof, and to be perfectly honest, it's been through the roof for a long time. You know, I, I know it's coming to light now with all of these um, recent, you know, horrible crashes and fatalities, but this is something that's not news to a lot of people. Uh, we discussed this situation with Constable Stan Larkin on Good Morning Hamilton, and he said that police is they're going to keep a closer eye on the city's top 10 collision intersections and will push for road safety reform with city councillors. Is that a good start? Uh, yeah, I'd love to know what road safety reform actually means. Um, you know, to me, a lot of this, we really have to start realizing that these aren't at all accidents and these are completely the results of the choices that we make and the deliberate choices that we make and how we apply you know a human lens to our streets so maybe that's a start but um it's going to take a lot more than just targeting a few collisions that's like um putting a band-aid on something that desperately needs stitches so what's the what's the silver bullet or the magic pill here how do we how do we start solving this issue yeah so i think the first thing is that we need a deep commitment from all of council um to recognize how dangerous and violent our streets actually are. Um, we need a complete attitudinal shift, which is something I know it's a bit of a big ask, but if we're serious about uh, preventing road violence, we need a t- total buy-in from council. We need, we need people that are willing to lead around, completely around that horseshoe, and as well as not to push back every time you know, neighborhoods and community members come to council looking for things to be improved. I mean, if you drive through any of our neighborhoods, you'll see these slow-down signs you know, that's not a strategic approach to stopping road violence. That's, that's a cry for help from the residents. So what, what kind of road safety measures would you be more uh, apt to, to seeing? You know, we, we have some, you know, speed bumps in some neighborhoods in the city. Do, do we need more of those? Do we need something different? Well, yeah, you know, it, there's a lot of work to be done here for sure. But of course, converting our, our superhighway, one-way, five-lane streets would be, would be a good start, narrowing roads down, um, intersections that prioritize people and children, you know, getting rid of right turns on reds, all these little things that we could do pretty pretty quickly uh, and efficiently. But it's really about listening to the people 
that are being affected by road violence. And that is the biggest issue that I think uh, doesn't actually get through to council. We're talking about pedestrian safety here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML with uh, concerned parent Tom Flood. He's also the principal at Ravello Creative. There is a petition uh, going to city council today calling on councillors to uh, take action on this issue. Do you expect any immediate action from city officials? You know, I, 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 I hope there will be. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that it takes this many fatalities and injuries. And, um, you know, the, the, the horrible fatality of Boris Brought was just down the street from where I live. And maybe that will be the wake-up call that, that's needed. But um, it's, it's a challenge around that horseshoe. There's a few incredible leaders there making, making change and pushing for it. But it's going to take buy-in from the whole group. You mentioned the attitudinal shift, too, and that is certainly a big part of this. But it also goes to that mindset of pedestrians as well, so much so that you tweeted about this a couple of weeks ago as you were driving along and a pedestrian was looking at their phone while crossing the crosswalk and you had to, you know, um, not hit them, obviously, but they didn't even acknowledge that you took action to avoid a serious collision. So there's there's really that mind shift that has to take place, too. Are you talking about on the pedestrian side? Yeah. Yeah, you know what, Rick, that was actually, to be totally honest, I was being tongue-in-cheek. What I was trying referring to is that it's completely on the driver, and the onus should be put on the driver. I'm a driver as a driver myself, and that's something that gets lost in the discussion a lot of the time. But we really need to focus our, our efforts on eliminating opportunities for the driver to be dangerous and not focus them on, you know, ways that pedestrians can stay safe. There should be some onus on the pedestrian, too, though. I think pedestrians know how to take care of themselves. Um, to be perfectly honest, we need to really focus our efforts on the true danger, which, of course, is, is the driver. Uh, City Council, um, just a couple of weeks ago or so, approved 10 more red light cameras in the city. I think we're going to have upwards of 30 or 32, somewhere around there. Is, is that going to make a difference? Yeah, that, 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 that's a good start. That's a great help. Um, but, um, again, it, it's, it's, it's one piece of this larger puzzle that there's a lot of moving parts. But... Um, that's one that definitely helps. What are some of the most dangerous areas of our city for pedestrians and motorists? Uh, I mean, I think the list is out there, but if anyone's walked near Main Street or any of our, our five five-lane highways, that would be some of the, probably the worst areas. Yeah, I would agree with that. Tom, really appreciate your time today, and uh, stay safe on the roads. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. That is Tom Flood, Hamilton Parents. He's also a principal at Ravello Creative, talking about this rash of, of recent collisions involving pedestrians, and eight so far have become fatal collisions. And yeah, it, it's time for a number of stakeholders to come to the table to uh, not only investigate and find out why this is happening, but make these corrections. So is it changing Main Street to a two-way or King Street in some areas to a two-way? Maybe. Is it stopping people from turning right on a red, as Tom mentioned? I don't, I, you know, you can make these rules and make a number of changes either to the physical nature of the road or the flow of traffic. I still think you're going to have drivers out there who are just not paying enough attention. At the end of the day, they're just not paying enough attention. And listen, I'm, I'm guilty of that from time to time as well. I'm no saint behind the wheel. I try my best, but there are times, um, you know, when I'm driving to work or I get home and thinking, I don't remember much of my drive. Really? Like, obviously, I'm paying attention, but am I paying 
the ultimate attention I can to each and every second of the drive? No, I mean, you're, look, you're looking at billboards, you're watching for other cars, you're looking at the sidewalk, maybe something catches your eye. Hey, a new store just opened up there. Meantime, you know you've missed you know, a car or two that have whizzed by. It's easy to do. Easy to do. Um, we can um, you know, make changes to the roads, whether or not that is going to change our mindset behind the wheel or those pedestrians who may be staring at their phone while they're crossing over the crosswalk or have their headphones on and not paying attention. That plays a part in it as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Pretty big news the other day from the provincial NDP pledging to set a wage floor for early childhood educators. And joining us to discuss this is Andrea Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP and the MPP for Hamilton Centre as well. Andrea, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Uh, what are you promising to do should you win election on uh, June 2nd? Well, we certainly are anxious to speed up the $10 a day child care for families, but what we need to do to be successful in that regard is to expand uh, the not-for-profit child care sector, and that's going to mean we need more staff. And one of the things early childhood educators have been telling us for a very long time uh, is that they're they're not earning enough to uh, to stay in the sector. In fact, I, I was with someone yesterday, Savi, and she was saying that back in 2017, she was earning $18 an hour. It wasn't enough then. Uh, it's certainly not enough now. So our commitment is to increase the wages uh, to, as a minimum, to $25 an hour uh, for uh, re- registered early childhood educators, uh, as well as increase the wages to all of the other supports in child care uh, to $20 an hour. Uh, and from there, we then start the process of putting together a grid, putting together the requirements that anybody should be able to rely on uh, for things like a pension and benefits uh, and, uh, uh, and, and for, for ECEs, particularly planning time uh, to help them prepare and be ready uh, for every day. Uh, these are things that, um, that they deserve no, n- nothing less uh, and that our kids uh, deserve to see the benefits of as well. I would imagine that this will not only retain many uh, individuals in this field, but also attract more individuals. As you mentioned, there's a, a big shortage of early childhood educators. Yeah, there's no doubt. It, it, there is a huge shortage, and, and people continue to leave the field. And, and that's because successive governments have not prioritized child care uh, and have not respected uh, the women, largely women, who do this work. Uh, and that's uh, something that disappointed all of us, I think, for 15 years as the, the Liberals were at the helm. And, of course, Doug Ford has come in and, and basically said, uh, you're, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll um, set a, a wage at $18 an hour, which is what people were leaving the field for back in 2017. So it's just not an effective plan. But we know that Doug Ford was never interested in child care. That's why Ontario was the very last province to sign on. Doug Ford had to be dragged kicking and screaming uh, to, to, to cut that deal. Uh, in the meantime, parents suffered, families suffered. Uh, and, and when things are so expensive these days, um, Doug Ford just turned his back on families and, and didn't give them the financial break that they needed. This would also cut into the gender pay gap as well. 
Absolutely. And we had our first leaders debate last night, Rick, in Toronto. Unfortunately, Mr. Ford didn't think women's issues were important enough to show up. Uh, but the other two leaders and I had a great conversation uh, about uh, the gender pay gap. Yesterday was, uh, uh, was uh, Equal Pay Day. Uh, so we talked about what are the things that need to happen. We need to respect women's work. Uh, we need to make sure that, uh, uh, that we have pay transparency. Uh, we, we need to get rid of things like Bill 124, which targets women, uh, that's uh, Doug Ford's low-wage policy, uh, as well as another policy that they literally just debated yesterday, uh, Bill 106, which, again, uh, it targets women workers, it targets their uh, right to pay equity, and it was shameful that the government uh, debated that bill uh, on the floor of the legislature yesterday. We know uh, that Doug Ford's not on the side of women, uh, not on the side of families, not on the side of uh, everyday working folks, uh, but certainly we also know that we have an opportunity in a couple of weeks to show Doug Ford the door and start to delivering for women uh, and for all equity-deserving groups in this province. don't want to speak for the Ford camp, but they claim that there was a scheduling conflict and could not participate in last night's debate, But which is kind of weird, but I'll, I'll just leave it at that. How, how much would your plan cost the province? How much does this cost? Well, we're in the process of doing all of that work, but the bottom line is it's what it's, what it's costing our province if we don't do this. That's what the issue is here. And we know what it's costing our child care sector. Our child care sector is falling apart. Uh, in, in, in Toronto, we lost $2.8 million dollars in child care funding from the Ford government. That's taking us backwards. We can't afford that in the future. We need women in the workplace. Women deserve to pursue, pursue careers. Early childhood education really does set children on a great path of, of learning and development going forward. Uh, for all those reasons, uh, we can't afford not to shore up the child care sector and finally bring affordable child care to families. You know, what, <laughs> the burden of child care costs is, is sometimes up to the cost of a mortgage, over $2,000 a month. Families are deciding not to expand their family, not to have another child, because they can't afford the child care. We, they shouldn't have to make those kinds of decisions. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath. Uh, earlier this week, we heard from Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, uh, who said that the province will not be reinstating its mask mandate, even though we're now in a sixth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, and the peak is not going to be realized for at least a few more weeks. Should the mask mandate be reinstated, or, or should it be up to individuals to make that self-risk assessment? Well, we've been calling on the government to uh, to reinstate a mask mandate for schools for some time now. Uh, but look, we all know what's what's happened. We've seen this movie before. Uh, Doug Ford made decisions based on politics instead of public safety, uh, and now the, the experts are demanding uh, that uh, that something be done to to you know bend this curve uh, to uh, to deal with the uh, you know the second or sub variant of uh, of Omicron and. And I have to say, I know a lot of people are doing that already on their own accord, wearing masks and uh, being careful in, in closed spaces, and, and that's what people need to be doing. But to have a government that completely absconds from any responsibility uh, to showing leadership on this is, is really problematic. We know that hospitals are filling up again. Uh, you know, the chief medical officer said that there's going to be 600 people a day in ICUs by, by the middle of May. That means that all of those surgeries and procedures that have been cancelled uh, are going to continue to uh, uh, to be stretched out even further as people wait with pain uh, and uncertainty about their well-being. More of those surgeries and procedures are going to be uh, postponed, uh, and our healthcare 
staff or healthcare workers who are already leaving in droves because they're exhausted and they're disrespected and they're uh, they're just they're, they're stressed to the max even more are going to leave the profession. So this is a very irresponsible path that Doug Ford has once again put us on. Uh, and as many, many experts have said, uh, we should have kept them on for a, a little bit longer. We know how to uh, address the spread of COVID-19, how to protect our healthcare workers, our most vulnerable, our hospitals. Uh, let's think about you know those people in our families who, who might need a knee replacement or a hip surgery or a cancer screening uh, who are going to be uh, you know, at a health risk uh, because we're we are not doing the right thing by them. Experts are saying masks are necessary again. You know, I, I, I've always listened to what the experts have to say. Uh, it's too bad Doug Ford has listened to his own uh, political well-being instead. We'll have to leave it there. Andrea, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Rick. Take care. You too. That's Andrea Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP, also the Hamilton Centre NDP MPP. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Bank of Canada expected to once again announce another interest rate hike today. No moss! No more. Stop it! Uh, Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us now. Marvin, are you joining me in my chorus of no more? <laughs> well, actually, no. <laughs> uh, we've had historically low interest rates. In fact, they couldn't have been any lower than 0.25%. We took one step up to 0.5%. There is room to go up. And, and Rick, just frankly, that's to give the Bank of Canada wiggle room in case there's some other economic shock down the road. So... We don't have to jump hugely, but I think we do need to slowly move these back to something more normal. This is a necessary evil. Yeah, that's the way I would describe it. So why the interest rates got cut two years ago was that the pandemic was going to have broad and far-reaching effects. We didn't really know what those were going to be. The last pandemic was over 100 years ago. That was the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. And so as a precautionary measure... The Bank of Canada made money cheaper, easier to borrow, just to kind of throw some calmness onto the waters. Now that the pandemic is starting to wane, we really need to go back to where we are. But I should point out again, they're doing this on a slow and steady basis. Now, previous uh, hike, or the previous hike, was a quarter of a percentage point, and I understand that today is going to be a half a percent. Why the jump? (laughs) Well, can I say it might be a half a percent? We don't know. The Bank of Canada, uh, what shall I call them, governors, uh, have been giving speeches over the last few weeks warning us that it might be more aggressive. Uh, If I can take you back six weeks ago when they did the last hike, that was one week before Russia invaded Ukraine. And unfortunately, they did the interest rate hike. Russia invades Ukraine. The price of oil goes sky high. The price of gasoline goes sky high. And everything they were trying to do to rein in inflation just went out the window. So that first quarter point didn't do anything anything like they were supposed to do. I think it's going to go up again today. I'm not sure if it's going to be another quarter point or a half a point. Uh, their next opportunity to set this rate comes on June the 1st. So they could opt to do the simpler rate today, quarter point, but then warn us that may go up again in another six weeks. The half point would really be to send a very, very strong signal to the marketplace that uh, we're serious about uh, bringing inflation back down to something more reasonable. 
But I'll also tell you this, Rick, if you are planning to travel, if they were to increase the interest rates by half a point today, expect to see a rise in the value of the dollar, maybe to 81 cents U.S., Hmm, something to look out for. Marvin Ryder is our guest, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. We're talking about the rising interest rates in the Bank of Canada expected to announce another uh, hike today. There is a delicate balance that they have to weigh. I mean, the, the war and its impacts, uh, supply chain issues, house prices are much higher than they were the last time we were at about 2%. Um, all, all these different things play a part in their decisions, don't they? They do. And, and again, I, I think we have to keep this in perspective. Before, before COVID, uh, the rate charged by the Bank of Canada was running around 2%. It went down to a quarter of a point. Today, if it were to go up a half a point, that would mean the Bank of Canada is charging one. It's still half what it was pre-COVID. Uh, and that still means then when you're going to get a mortgage, you can get it in the low 3% range. Uh, Rick, when I got my first house, my mortgage was something like uh, 11 and a quarter percent. Uh, eventually, it got down to something like eight and a half percent. When I see people with mortgages at two, two and a half, even three, I think you are living in a very lucky time. Those are well below the average rates we've had. And yet the idea is to let people know that borrowing is not free. We're not having a sale. You shouldn't be stocking up on debt. In fact, as always, if you take on debt, your first mission should be to pay it down as quickly as you can. So I think these are just healthy reminders to people uh, that, uh, you know, what you saw was an aberration, not the new normal. Could today's anticipated hike, and, and we, we've been told that more are on the way, could it cool off the housing market? Could it force some home buyers on the sidelines? Well, that really is the hope. And, and so I want to be clear what cool off the housing market means. The Bank of Canada, again, talking about your delicate balancing act, doesn't want to see housing prices fall. Yes, I know they went up 25% in a year, but they don't want to see them go down because then those people who did jump into the market are going to say, well, why did I buy this house? I've lost all my equity in the house. I'm just going to walk away from it. And we'd trigger a recession like we saw in 2007-8. So their idea of cooling the housing market is to just cause a pricing freeze. They don't want housing prices to fall, but they want them to stop going up maybe for a year or two years, just get a freeze in the marketplace. So they're trying to find that balancing point. And again, they're doing it with these slow incremental adjustments. There'll be something today. There may be something else in June. They may pause for a, a period and then come back at it in the fall. They're just trying to test and see and, of course, the other wild card, which we mentioned a moment ago, the war with Ukraine and Russia, nobody knows where that is going to go. And, frankly, nobody knows if peace were declared tomorrow, then how soon we'd get back to normal. I, I think we could be seeing a new Iron Curtain falling in terms of our relations with Russia. Nobody knows quite what that is. So in the face of all that uncertainty, they're taking these baby steps. Marvin Reiner, Professor of DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Thanks for joining us today. and Enjoy the rest of your day. Glad to be with you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. These are clearly war crimes. These are clearly uh, crimes against humanity. And it is important for Canada to play its role in making sure that there is accountability. 
um, for these acts, and these acts cannot go unpunished. That is the voice of Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie discussing alleged war crimes against Russia after its attacks against civilians in Ukraine. There are now unverified reports at this point that chemical weapons have been used by Russia in Ukraine. How does this change things if it does come to be that chemical weapons were indeed used in this conflict? Retired Canadian Armed Forces Lieutenant General Steve Bowes joins us now. He's a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Good morning, Steve. How are you today? Rick, I'm doing well. Yourself? I'm okay. Um, we know that Ukrainian forces uh, claim that three people had trouble breathing in Mariupol after a mysterious substance was uh, apparently dispersed from a Russian drone. Can this be verified easily? Uh, it can be verified, but it's not. It won't be an easy process to verify that. Um, you, evidence can be difficult to find. Um, it's possible that there might other be other video footage um, and uh, and like evidence from from other drones. Um, but uh, it can be difficult, but not impossible. Now, I guess the big question is: if it turns out that Russia did in fact use chemical weapons, how does this change the game? Um, I think it depends um, a lot on the kind of agent that they used, and uh, it's definitely an escalation, and I think it's best to think of it in those terms. It's an escalation of Russian attempts um, to bring the Mariupol phase to a close, if that, would, if that was the case. Back in 2012, then, U.S. President Barack Obama warned Syria against chemical weapons use. Chemical weapons were used in that civil war. Uh, he also stated that would be a red line for the U.S., if Russia uses chemical weapons, does that almost force NATO countries to, to go in? No, I don't think so. Um, that's an escalation that would lead to um, circumstances which we would be talking about World War III. Uh, more than likely, it would lead to a significant escalation of um, sanctions. These are issues that would be brought out in the, in the political domain. But uh, there are some significant steps that they could take, uh, both in terms of sanctions, but also in terms of providing aid indirectly to Ukrainian forces um, of the kinds of systems that have thus far not been provided to Ukrainian forces. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Steve Bowes, retired Canadian Armed Forces Lieutenant General and a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. So the White House preparing to announce a new, more diverse uh, package of military support for Ukraine, uh, estimates totaling $750 million. Without military aid from other countries, including Canada, I can't imagine Ukrainian forces being able to hold off Russia for this long. This aid that uh, we are providing is crucial. And I think that uh, it's important for our citizens to note that it's not just about the provision of systems, um, but it's about expertise. It's about occurring in country. You can see reports of uh, retired military members that are going in to, to train, not just to fight, but to train. Uh, reports on uh, retired U.S. Marines doing that, um, that I noted last night. Um, but it's also um, providing essential systems that they would have had in low supply, anti-armor weapons um, and air defense weapon systems. Those are, are crucial when you're up with a, against a force of the size of uh, Russia. But don't underestimate Ukrainian forces either. Um, they have morale on their side. They're fighting for the country whereas Russian forces um, are often the case with reported to be in low morale and therefore not necessarily knowing what they're fighting for. Yeah, Ukraine's resolve has been unbelievable and it's been something to see, that is for sure. You mentioned sanctions a couple of minutes ago. Do you think the sanctions against Russia have uh, made an impact? Has it slowed their war machine? Uh, sanctions on that side would be very um, slow to um, have an effect. Um, but as the conflict uh, progresses and continues, 
um, it will have an effect. It will certainly degrade their capability in certain areas, but sanctions are not as don't don't achieve uh, you know speedy results. Steve Bowes is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Steve is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and a retired lieutenant general with the Canadian Armed Forces. Russia's attack on Ukraine started February 24th, so in a couple of weeks we're going to hit that two-month mark. Is there a critical juncture or a pivotal point that is coming up for, for both sides? You know, the, the fight that's, you know, that's going to occur in the Donbass is, I think, where the focus is going to be after Russia um, suffered serious setbacks and had to withdraw from our areas around Kiev, it appears to be refocusing its efforts on the eastern part of the country. And it's just important to note for all of our um, our, our citizens that, you know, the invasion of, of Ukraine occurred in, in 2014 when they took Crimea and then initially went in and supported the separatists in um, um, the eastern parts of the Donbass region. So this is simply the next phase. And thinking about it that way, gives a longevity to um, this conflict. This could occur, um, could, could continue for a lot longer than we, we typically appreciate. In uh, so far as the Ukrainian forces, if we arrive at a point where Russia feels that it can't win by using its conventional forces, then we cross a threshold with, uh, and begin to think about what kind of uh, systems that Russia might employ um, to bring it along. Clearly, there is a focus, it appears, in the Russian regime towards the 9th of May and the victory celebrations commemorating World War II. I'm not sure what that means in terms of uh, any short-term success for Russia, though. That'll be something to watch. Mr. Bose, thank you for your time today. Right on. Thank you very much. Steve Bose, retired uh, Lieutenant General with the Canadian Armed Forces, now a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. should also mention that Sweden today has announced that it will apply to join NATO in June. So it appears that uh, Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine has absolutely completely backfired in terms of uh, destabilizing NATO. In in fact, it is getting stronger um, and certainly will be so uh, come June when uh, Sweden uh, joins the membership. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The transaction fee is basically what you pay to use the Etsy platform. You also have a payment processing fee. And then in addition to that, there's also listing fees that are like your flat fees that you pay to sell on Etsy. And then the other thing called offsite ads fee, and that can be 12%, but it's completely random. Good morning, Hamilton. Rick Samprin with you. You're listening to 900 CHML. Thanks for taking some time to spend it with us here on 900 CHML. Interesting story developing out of Etsy. You may have heard of it. You may have shopped on Etsy from time to time. Well, thousands of Etsy sellers are now on strike over increased transaction fees on the e-commerce website. The company, known for selling handmade and homemade vintage goods, has hiked transaction fees for third-party sellers from 5% to 6.5%, despite its revenue being at an all-time high. Here to talk about it is Christina Jamesi, the founder of Lena Lux Beauty Co., and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Christina. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Why did you decide to join the Etsy strike? 
Um, well, um, being a part of Etsy just kind of feels like a rite of passage, especially for small businesses. Um, it's one of the fastest ways to uh, have your um, products be visible to a larger public. Um, what's been really frustrating is, you know, with already having um, this, such relatively higher fees, it really does um, eat into my profits. And with the increased cost, I can't uh, keep my store open anymore. Um it's, um, I'm actually planning on uh, not only just uh, being a part of the strike, just completely shutting down my shop and um, opening up elsewhere. Wow. So it's really impacted your bottom line so much so that you're just saying goodbye altogether. Uh, yes, it has. Um, even, um, you know, to begin with, um, the prices that I set on my Etsy store are much higher than what I would um, charge um, someone in person if I was at a trade show. Uh, apart from the website's transaction fee, Etsy also has a payment processing fee, a listing fee. There's another fee for offsite ads. How much were you paying just in fees? Um, you know, with everything, I would say about uh, 25% of my profits would go to Etsy. Um, with this increase, it's over 30%. Um, I, you know, don't get, I, well, I get the visibility that I need from my products. I don't really get to see profits. And um, the unfortunate part of that is I can't make my business grow with uh, these types of constraints. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Christina Jamesi, founder of Lena Lux Beauty Co., one of the many who have joined the Etsy strike. So much so, Christina has just closed down her business and looks forward to opening it in another place, I would assume. What's the future entail? Well, for the time being, I'm still continuing my marketing on uh, through Instagram and, um, you know, just to uh, keep my visibility going uh, for my products. And I'm just going to be looking for other um, Internet-based shop platforms, maybe something like Shopify or Store Envy. Um, you know, there's just a lot of decisions I still have to make. And you're not alone. I mean, it looks like and sounds like countless businesses who used Etsy have joined you in this strike, closing down their stores, trying to find another platform. What are other Etsy users saying? Are you guys talking to each other, thinking, uh, you know, we, we just got to get out of here and find uh, another platform? I haven't really talk, spoken to too many other um, Etsy users. I do see um, a lot of talk about what's been going on over Twitter. Um, I was already considering closing down my shop because I was frustrated by fees. And honestly, this price increase just uh, was the final nail in the coffin for me to just kind of get up and uh, find a different platform. I would imagine that last year, Etsy's gross market share reached a record $4.2 billion, and that was up 16% from 2020. Hearing those stats and now being hit with, you know, yet another fee uh, and just throwing in the towel, basically looking for a better option out there, that hearing those stats just must make your blood boil. It's really frustrating, you know, um, with um, the amount of things that we have been going through with the pandemic, you know, more people have been able to take the time to make their small businesses grow. And, you know, just to see something like uh, an Etsy, a larger company, just really reap those profits and then just kind of turn their backs on us um, has been very frustrating. Another thing I've heard, too, from other uh, people, whether it's strike organizers or people involved with Etsy in general, is uh, the company and, and others, really, they're not alone, needs to crack down on resellers or those who sell mass-produced goods. Are you of the same mindset that that should be somewhere else? Absolutely. Uh, this is not a new problem. Uh, you know, um, mass resellers and dropshippers have always been around. I think it's just becoming a lot more prominent. Well, tell us a little bit about your business, Lena Lux Beauty Co. What do you sell? How's it going? 
Oh, it's going great. Um, I uh, hand make and um, uh, produce um, body body butters. I use all natural ingredients. Um, I've been um, in cosmetics and studying cosmetic ingredients for a very long time now. And I just wanted to uh, put my knowledge and education into something that I'm truly passionate about. Um, I want to create products that everyone will just love smelling and applying on their bodies and just something that makes them feel good. That's pretty cool. Do you have the Instagram account that you can uh, hand over to our listeners? Uh, yes, it's going to be at Lena Lux Beauty Co. Excellent. Well, we'll be certain to search that out and purchase some products. And Christina, I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much. It was great to be here once again. Christina Jamesi, founder of Lena Lux Beauty Co., one of the many, many businesses affected by these increased fees at Etsy. And many vendors on that platform say they're halting sales of their items on the site for at least a week to protest uh, the hike in fees for uh, selling their wares on uh, the uh, e-commerce marketplace. Uh, Etsy sellers must now pay 6.5% commission on each transaction. That's up from 5%, uh, which has been in place since 2018. 18. And uh, not only are those commission fees up, uh, you know, there's transaction fees, um, ad fees. uh, I mean, they're paying as much as you heard from Christina, upwards of 30% of their profits are being consumed basically by these fees. So you can understand the frustration among those who are on Etsy. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As we know, World Cup 2022 is going to be in Qatar later on this year, November slash December. Canada will be in that tournament and a lot of excitement has been building for the last several weeks, if not months, towards seeing our uh, men perform at the biggest stage on uh, soccer's uh, stage, if you will. And this is after watching the Canadian women's team winning gold in Tokyo at the Olympics. Um, Canadian soccer is now being talked about in other countries to say, hey, how can we replicate what they're doing here? A lot of that work happens, uh, obviously, on the ground floor. It doesn't just magically appear. We have to develop these players. And one of the people, one of the leagues, one of the teams doing a great part in that is Bobby Smyrniotis, the head coach of Forge FC, the Canadian Premier League, in developing the Canadian superstars of tomorrow. Joining us now to talk about it is Bobby Smyrniotis, the head coach of Forge FC. Bobby, good morning. How are you? Doing well, Rick. How big of an excitement factor is the World Cup going to have on the CPL, not only this season but beyond? Because Canada is also going to be co-hosting the World Cup in 2026. Do you, do you feel that kind of groundswell of support? Yeah, it's absolutely massive what we're looking at. Uh, going forward from this point uh, up until 2026, you know, we're a World Cup nation um, for the next two World Cup cycles. And uh, that's a massive feat for for Canada soccer and for everything that's going on underneath, including us here at the Canadian Premier League. I think it's just going to allow the game to keep on growing. And when we're talking about the World Cup, you know, there's the Olympics and the World Cup, and those are the two biggest uh, sporting events uh, when we look at things globally. And I think that allows Canada to be on the global map uh, when we're talking about the sport of soccer. What has worked for Canada's national men's soccer program? Because for years, you know, we got to the CONCACAF stage and it really didn't get into a World Cup berth. What what has been the magic potion? I think sometimes you just uh, have a generation of players that are coming up and... Uh, you know, there's been a lot more professional opportunities for players, a lot more of the players playing in some of the top leagues uh, around the world. So it's usually a, you know, a combination of many things. But I think there's been some very good work done in the development stage in the last 10 years in all areas uh, of the country to bring up uh, some of these players that we currently see in the national team. 
and then uh, the players have uh, have done the rest by making uh, moves to some of the biggest clubs around the world. And I think once you're important on that stage, uh, you grow the confidence as, as a team um, to be able to compete in uh, in your region in CONCACAF. And we've shown that as being the uh, top team in uh, in North and Central America. Uh, the World Cup draw was held a couple of weeks ago. Canada drawn into Group F with Belgium, uh, Croatia, and Morocco. Do you, do you like the group? Uh, I like any group. You know, we're, uh, we're we're in the we're in the World Cup. Every group is going to be interesting. Every group is going to bring a bring a challenge. And the one thing uh, we've seen with this team, it's uh, they've got all the firepower going forward. They've become a very resolute uh, defensive team. And when you get into these big tournaments, you know it's going to be all about the details. And I think they've got a very good coach in John Herdman, who's going to have the team well organized. So you know we're going up against some juggernauts like uh, like Belgium, a team and a country that I know very well from a football uh, aspect. But I think everything is possible. Bobby Smirnaotis is the head coach of Forge FC, which plays in the Canadian Premier League. And uh, that league launched uh, last week, at least its latest season, season number four, which is kind of hard to believe. Uh, but you had a, a season opener at Pacific FC out in BC. It, it didn't go according to plan. You fell 2-1. to one. What happened in that game? Yeah, no, first game of the season, you know, I thought... Uh... The boys were uh, were very good and then getting through the processes that we want to see on the field and and doing things uh, the right way. Unfortunately, there was maybe you know a couple of lapses in the in the game, and uh, when you give a team, especially on the road, an opportunity to go up in the in the fifth minute uh, like we did, you know you're kind of chasing the game. But uh, I thought uh, the performance all around was was very good, and if the performance stays like that and we just get a little bit sharper, then uh, things will be uh, very good as we keep on going forward. Forge FC's home opener is this Saturday at Tim Hortons Field, 4 p.m. kickoff against arch-rival Cavalry FC. You have some doozies of, uh, of a battle with those guys over the first three years of the CPL. This being the first home game as well since uh, you guys lost the CPL final to Pacific in December, is there, I don't know, a, a, a smidge of redemption here? Is it just the home opener and you want to play your best? What's the thought process going into this game? I think it's the second. It's our home opener. You know, we're getting to play in front of our fans for the first time this year with new players on the squad, some changes um, to personnel, and just go out there and put in a good performance. That's the most important thing when you're looking uh, early on in the season. You know, I made the uh, interesting comment on the weekend that we've kept our tradition up of uh, never winning on opening day uh, in the four years of the CPL, and that hasn't uh, seemed to hinder us as we go uh, further into the season. So we want to keep up that same trend and. Uh, just keep ourselves moving forward, you know, put on a good show for our fans, uh, for our supporters and everyone who's going to be here for a great day on Saturday at the Morton's Field. New uh, kits were unveiled this year, the new uniforms for Forge and a bunch of other teams, but uh, your uniform is a little bit different because you have a number two on the uniform. What does that signify to you? Yeah, it's, it signifies uh, the work that we've done over these uh, last few years in winning the first two championships uh, in 2019 and 2020, and I think that's a great way to pay uh, homage to uh, to what the club has done and uh, to start building the history of this club. You know, this is year four, but as a club, we've done a lot, not only on the domestic level, but on the international stage with what we've been able to do in the CONCACAF region and the CONCACAF League and participating in Champions League this year for the first time, being the first CPL team uh, to do that. So I think uh, anytime you can add those little pieces uh, to the jersey, I think that creates that little bit of history and tradition uh, that we hope will uh, will keep on growing not only for the next five years but for the next 50. And again, fans in this community and uh, maybe even non-fans, someone who just wants to check out the game of soccer should head to uh, Tim Hortons Field this Saturday at 4 for Cavalry versus the hometown club Forge FC. Bobby, always appreciate the time. Good luck on Saturday. 
Thank you very much, Rick. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.